Good morning, everybody. I want to thank the, the openers for uh, all that they did. And uh, it, it's, it's challenging, but uh, we're getting through it all. A couple of days ago, I had uh, mentioned to Carol that it's going to be kind of strange speaking to a, uh, a camera instead of speaking to a crowd. Well, this morning when I got up and I came into the kitchen, Carol took care of all that for me. And uh, I'm going to see just how well you can see this, but I want you to see my audience this morning. This is who I'm looking at. This is who I get to speak to this morning. So that's my help. And if you happen to see me starting to grin this morning, it's because I'm looking at that smiley face underneath the clock. But be that as it may, this morning we're moving back into our study in the book of Hebrews. We've been kind of bouncing back and forth a little bit between that and, and uh, other books as uh, some of our schedules got mixed up. But we're back on track now and we're moving back into the book of Hebrews. Now, Phil, in his introduction to the uh, book of Hebrews, indicated that we don't know definitively who the author of Hebrews is. <clears throat> but there are some ideas who the author could be but he does not identify himself specifically in the letter. So we're left guessing a little bit. Likewise, we don't know who the letter was addressed to, but by its content, we can surmise that it was written to a Jewish audience. <clears throat> now, Phil gave a breakdown on the contents of the book of Hebrews, and I'm not going to take time to, re to review that. But I encourage you to listen to his message on the BFSA website, if you haven't already done so, as he also gives a description of how we will be studying the somewhat complicated book in the coming weeks ahead. But this morning, we're going to be looking at Hebrews chapter 1, starting in verse 5, and going to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 4. The title for this passage is, Pay More Careful Attention. I've given it the subtitle, What Do You See? We'll be looking at who Jesus is in particular to Jesus in comparison to angels, and we'll also be looking at the first of several warnings <clears throat> that are given in the book of Hebrews. We'll also be looking at who or how do you see when it comes to seeing Jesus. Keep your Bible open to the Now I'm not sure if we're still going here, but we we're bouncing back and forth on the internet a little bit. But we'll keep going regardless. This first section of Hebrews looks at the kingly sonship of Jesus Christ. The author draws heavenly on the Old Testament scripture in demonstrating the uniqueness of the Son of God. Now I want to take a moment to speak about that uniqueness. The uniqueness of the Trinity, that is God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As all three are mentioned in the verses before us today, <clears throat> I've heard people try at times to describe the Trinity in human or earthly terms to help us understand all three persons in one being. And I appreciate their efforts to do so, but for me personally, I often find that these descriptions or analogies come up far short in their attempt to do so. This is probably because we can't truly understand the mystery of the Trinity, at least not while we're on this earth. You know, it doesn't mean we shouldn't try to explain the Trinity, especially to those who are new in their faith. But I think we have to resign ourselves to the fact <clears throat> that we can never fully explain what we can't fully comprehend. That's because when the day comes that we can 
worship God, perhaps on that day, when we're worshiping God in person, some or all of these mysteries will be revealed. But for now, it remains a task of trying to describe the details of a puzzle in which only a few pieces have been assembled. That being said, though, we do have some of those puzzle pieces before us today, and we can look at what they reveal. And let's uh, take a look at Hebrews chapter 1, and I'm going to start back a couple of verses before verse 5. You're going to be reading Hebrews chapter 1, verses 3 to 6. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So he became as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is superior to theirs. For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have become your father. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. And again, when God brings his firstborn into the world, he said that all God's angels worship him. So let's start off with the relationship of God the Father, his son Jesus, and how that relates to the angels themselves. Where are they and what are they in relationship to each other? First off, the relationship between God and Jesus is that of the Father and Son. This is made very clear in the verses that are contained in chapter 1, and there's a lot of reference to Jesus being God's Son all throughout the New Testament. And perhaps most clearly of all is found in what is the most often quoted verse in the Bible, John 3.16. But what has to be recognized is that this father-son relationship is not the same as an earthly father-son relationship. While Jesus is God's son, he is uniquely God as well. I'm still trying to wrap my head around that. I use the word uniquely here because nowhere else does such a relationship exist among any other living beings. In that the Trinity, we have three individual beings, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, existing together as one. But if God is eternal then why would the author of Hebrews quote from the book of Psalms regarding this relationship, where he says, you are my son, today I have become your father. If God is eternal, and therefore the triune relationship of the father, son, and spirit is eternal, then why did the author state that at a specific point in time, God became the father of Jesus? To understand that, we have to look at the context within which the author of Hebrews is speaking. The author of Hebrews is not referring or referencing the eternal existence of Jesus Christ. That is Jesus as the creator of the universe. But rather, even though Jesus has existed since before time was in existence, and Jesus is and will always be God's son, one of the main themes of Hebrews is the prophecy of existence, purpose, supremacy, and relationship of Jesus Christ as the Messiah. Even though in some of these verses, the author refers to Jesus and his role in creation, his role in uh, in heaven, his role is in eternity. The main theme behind Jesus Christ here is Jesus as the Messiah. Jesus came to this earth as the Messiah, as one of us, but yet still fully God. This is how we have to look at this comparison of Jesus to the angels, as described in Hebrews as well. Not as God's eternal son but as God's one and only Son, 
who came to this world to fulfill the old covenant by bringing in a new covenant of salvation by grace. That's not to diminish all of the other aspects of Jesus. But what we have before us this morning is Jesus as the Son of God. In that context, we can begin to understand that Jesus, who walked this earth, as is described in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste, he might taste death for everyone. This is the light through which we can begin to see how angels can worship someone who was made a little lower than themselves. Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, came to this earth as the servant Son of God. By doing so, his crown of thorns was replaced with a crown of glory. Jesus Christ, who now sits at the right hand of God, left his glory above to be a servant to us and show us how God's grace, his grace, is extended to anyone who will accept it so that we might have eternal life. That is how Christ, who was made a little lower than the angels, still remains superior to them and worthy of their worship. Angels are mentioned several times in the verses before us today. And I'd like to spend a few minutes looking at the role of angels, as well as some misconceptions about angels. In chapter 1, the author gives a description of angels, as well as at least one of the roles of angels. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 7 reads, In speaking of angels, he says, He makes his angels winds, his servants flames of fire. In verse 7, the author could be referring to the different forms or natures that angels can take in carrying out the tasks God gives them. Angels appeared in human form to Lot in Genesis 19. Angels have appeared as fiery soldiers in 2 Kings chapter 6. And angels appeared as a heavenly host in announcing the birth of Jesus in Luke chapter 2. Angels have the ability to take on the form required for the task God assigns them. Well, in the next section, the author of Hebrews contrasts this changeable nature of angels with the Son's eternal and unchangeable throne. And we'll move on into verses 8 to 13 of Hebrews chapter 1. And try and pay attention as we read them or as you follow along in your Bible, the contrast between this changeable nature of angels and the unchangeable throne of Jesus Christ. But about the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, will last forever and ever, and the righteousness will be the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has set you above your companions by anointing you with the oil of joy. He also says in the beginning, O Lord, you laid the foundations of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. They will wear out like a garment, but you will roll them up like a robe. Like a garment, they will be changed, but you remain the same, and your years will never end. To which of the angels did God ever say, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? So here we have a comparison with Jesus Christ and that of angels. The comparison between Jesus Christ, his eternal throne, his unending kingship, with that of the often changing roles of angels. In the last chapter, we're giving an interesting insight into just one of those roles of, uh, that the angels have 
Hebrews chapter 1 verse 14 reads, Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? Are not all angels ministering spirits sent those to serve those who will inherit salvation? The role of angels can be broken down into four categories. You may have a different way of defining the roles of angels, but for me, this keeps it simple. Four simple categories that the roles of angels can fall into. Firstly, angels are God's messengers. An angel came to uh, Lot to warn him about, about the coming destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And an angel also came to Mary to announce to her that she was going to give birth to a son who would change the world. Secondly, angels are God-sent protectors. Psalm 91 verse 11 reads, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. Satan tried to use this idea with Jesus when he tempted him, in that when he was on top of the highest point of the temple, and he told Jesus, just jump from here. God will send his angels, they'll protect you. Thirdly, angels are God's worshipers. We talked, or we, we looked a little bit about that in uh, chapter six of the, or sorry, verse six of the first chapter of Hebrews, where the angels are told to worship Jesus. But also in Isaiah chapter six, verse three, it reads, and this is speaking of angels, one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. And the whole earth is full of his glory. Fourthly, angels are God's warriors. <clears throat> we can find this in uh, just one example of this anyway, in 2 Kings chapter 6, verses 17. And Elisha prayed, O Lord, open his eyes so that he may see. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes, and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Now, we need to remember that as powerful as angels are, they are not omnipotent, they are not omnipresent, and they are not omniscient, in that they are not all-powerful. An angel cannot be every place at the same time, and angels don't know everything. Those are qualities that only God possesses. What, what is it after you? And it's also important to remember... I got it. As powerful as he is, is a fallen angel. Satan is neither omnipotent, omnipresent, nor omniscient. Are not all angels ministering spirits sent to serve those who will inherit salvation? We can take that idea and using the four categories that I just uh, introduced, we can put that statement into three of those categories Meaning that angels, in this example found in uh, Hebrews chapter 1, could be God's messengers as they serve. They could be God's sent protectors as they serve, or perhaps even God's warriors as they serve those who will inherit salvation. But the question comes up, who are those who will inherit salvation? See, the author is using the future tense will when he speaks of inheriting salvation. Now, we as 21st century Christians are taught that salvation is a deliverance by grace from an eternity in hell that would be justified by the sin that we are guilty of. Now, while this definition is true, I think we sometimes fall into the trap that there's nothing left to look forward to. 
after we repent of sin that condemns us and accept Christ as our Savior. We have that feeling that it's accomplished. There's nothing more left. Now, while it's true that our salvation is accomplished, it was accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross, when we accept Christ, we have that assurance of eternal salvation. But clearly, there's a future inheritance that we have to look forward to in regards to salvation. Because while our salvation is complete, and while we are still called to be servants on this earth, we also have a future inheritance to anticipate. For the Hebrew audience, they would have been very familiar with the word salvation, implying a salvation from one's enemies. Especially in the light of all the Old Testament references that are being used here in Hebrews, and just their overall general knowledge of Old Testament literature. we have a future inheritance to look forward to. We will have a salvation from our enemy, Satan, in that there is a final battle that has been prophesied that will take place, and we will see Satan cast from the earth, and there will be a new heaven and a new earth, for the old shall pass away, and all of those, that is us, who call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior, will be part of this inheritance for all eternity. Now, whether this is specifically what the author had in mind when he referred to those who will inherit salvation, or whether it was one of the other provinces that God has made, such as Jesus telling his disciples that he was going away ahead of them to prepare a place for them. Regardless of what the author specifically had in mind, it's interesting to note here that in order for the readers of this epistle to receive this inheritance, unless the rapture occurred first, they would have to be the ones who would die, which is just the opposite of how an inheritance normally works. Normally, we receive an inheritance because somebody we know died and in their will left us something of value because they thought we were valuable. But it's just the opposite with this future eternal inheritance. We have to die in order to receive that inheritance. We wait today with the same anticipation of our own salvation, that is, the inheritance yet to come for us. Now, a question I want to spend a few minutes on is that of, do we have guardian angels? Specifically, are there specific angels assigned to specific people right from birth to protect us, to keep us safe, to guide us? The entertainment industry is full of movies and TV shows depicting just that. Or somebody might say sometimes in conversation, so-and-so is my guardian angel because of how they look after me. But are guardian angels biblical? Now, I'm not speaking about angels who guard people, such as in the story that Angie and the boys shared with us. But specifically, do we have angels assigned to us to be our own personal guardian angels. Now we can conclude that angels as depicted in verse 14 will serve or minister to Christians on this earth. There will be contact between angels and humans as they carry out this role. Hebrew 13 alludes to this. I don't believe though that there's enough evidence to indicate that angels minister to all humans, but to Christians, I believe that to be the case. As well, the Bible teaches that angels are entrusted with the care of children. This can be found in Matthew chapter 
18, verse 10. See that you do not look down on one of these little ones, for I tell you that their angels in heaven always see the face of my Father in heaven. From this, earth, from this verse, we can see that there are a group of angels entrusted with the care of children, and that's really comforting for parents. But we can't conclude from this verse that each child has a specific angel assigned to them as their personal bodyguard. I kind of look at it using a sports analogy. In basketball or football, it's just as plausible that here that the angels as being described are using a zone defense rather than man-to-man coverage. The angels as a group have at least one of their roles, that task of caring for children. But not specifically, each angel has his own child assigned to him. The closest verse in the Bible I have found that might indicate the existence of a personal guardian angel is found in Acts chapter 12, verse 15. And that verse reads, you're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said it must be his angel. At a quick reading of this verse, we can indeed seem to see that it indicates that Peter has a guardian angel. See, this is the story of Peter who was cast into prison. And uh, God sent an angel who miraculously set about helping Peter escape from prison. And after Peter was back out on the street, he went to his friend's house and he was knocking on the door, trying to gain entrance into his friend's house. The servant girl, Rhoda, came to the door, recognized his voice, and she was so excited that instead of letting him in, she went running off to tell the others, hey, Peter's at the door. But they couldn't believe them. They couldn't believe Rhoda. And they kept insisting, kept telling her, it must be his angel. Well, if you read the story of Peter's escape from prison in Acts chapter 12, an angel did appear and miraculously orchestrated his release from prison. And when Peter reached the street, he said, now I know without a doubt that the Lord sent his angel. Peter never said he sent my angel, but rather he said the Lord sent his angel. Peter recognized that the angels are God's messengers, servants, protectors, warriors, not his own personal. As well, when Peter kept knocking and they finally opened the door, it was not not an angel they found, but rather Peter. It was a belief at that time among Jewish people that guardian angels actually were were there, that they did exist, and that they were assigned specifically to people. And that could be the reason why they responded to Rhoda, it must be his angels. But it's really important to remember or to recognize here that this verse is not stating a biblical fact, but rather it, it was recording a dialogue that took place. So is it possible that people have their own personal guardian angels? It's possible, but I don't believe there's enough evidence to make it probable. And there are dangers in believing this to be true. You see, I've heard stories of people who actually begin talking with what they believe is their personal guardian angel, even giving them a name. Their interaction with God diminishes as their interaction with their angel increases. Now, just to be clear, I do believe that God sends his angels to aid us and to minister to us in our time of need or to help God carry out his will in our life. Sometimes that contact can be an an invisible form that we might never know, or it could be an an interaction that takes place 
in which we can see that angel, perhaps in human form. But we should never try to pray to angels, worship angels, command angels, or place them above God in your life. Another misbelief that occurs when it comes to angels is the belief that we become angels when we die. People are often sincere when they make this statement. And it's a way of easing the pain of losing someone you love when they die. And I could be sensitive to that. But in reality, there is no biblical evidence to support that we become angels when we die. When a Christian dies, they do indeed go to heaven to be with Jesus. But angels are created beings just as we are created. And in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7, we can see that humans are a little lower than the angels. But there will come a time when we will actually judge angels as stated in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 3. So while we have similarities with angels and that we are both created beings, we are not transformed into angels when we go to heaven. Well, let's switch gears now and take a look at the very beginning of Hebrews chapter 2. This is the first of several warnings that are found in the book of Hebrews. And these are very somber warnings that have to be heeded or else we run in danger of affecting our relationship with God. Hebrews chapter 2, reading verses 1 to 4. We must pay more careful attention, therefore, to what we have heard, so that we do not drift away. For if the message spoken by angels was binding, and every violation and disobedience received its just punishment, how shall we escape if we ignore such a great salvation? This salvation, which was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard him. God also testified to it by signs and wonders and by various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. The beginning of chapter 2 is a continuation of chapter 1. The author connects the two with the word, therefore. With all that I have told you about the kingship of Jesus Christ and how he is destined to triumph over his enemies, the author said, you need to pay close attention to to his message. The author was saying, okay, look, guys, I've just finished explaining to you that connection between Jesus and God and that of the angels. Now we need to look at the connection between Jesus and us. We need to pay attention because if you don't pay attention to these warnings, then you run the danger of drifting away from your faith. And sadly, many, many people do just that. Well, what does drifting away look like? It has many faces, but for some, it starts with what they can't see. Have you ever heard or had somebody make the statement to you? Perhaps you've thought about it yourself. If only I can see God, then it would be easier for me to believe in him. Lee Stover wrote a book titled The Case for a Creator. In it, he interviews several scientists about everything from microbiology to the grandeur of the universe. One scientist, J.P. Moreland, who has a degree in chemistry, also has a keen interest in consciousness and had an interesting answer to his daughter's statement. If I could see God, it would help me believe in him. I'd like to read his response to you um, that he had with his daughter because it's a common question and a stumbling block for many in our world today. This is J.P. Morton speaking. 
In fact, I remember the time when my daughter was in fifth grade and we were having family prayers. She said, Dad, if I could see God, it would help me believe in him. I said, well, honey, the problem isn't that you've never seen God. The problem is that you've never seen your mother. And her mother was sitting right next to her. My daughter said, what do you mean, Dad? I said, suppose without hurting your mom, we were able to take her apart cell by cell and peek inside each one of them. We would never come to the moment where we would say, look, here's what mommy's thinking about doing the rest of the day. Or, hey, this cell contains mommy's feelings. Or, so this is what mom believes about pro football. We couldn't find mommy's thoughts, beliefs, desires, or her feelings. Guess what else we would never find? We'd never find mommy's ego or herself. We would never say, finally, this is the particular brain cell. There's mommy's ego. There's mommy. There's herself. That's because mommy is a person and persons are invisible. Mommy's ego and her conscious life are invisible. Now she's small enough to have a body. Well, God is too big to have a body. So let's pray. See, our soul, our spirit, dwells within a human body made of flesh and bone. But who we are is not what we see with our eyes. When our body ceases to function, who we are that is our spirit continues on. In the same way that young girl couldn't see her mother's consciousness, so we cannot see God. But to that girl, her mother existed. She could feel her mother's love, her mother's protection, affection, joy, and discipline. Though our eyes can't see God, we sense all the attributes of God in our life. And we can see God all around us in his creation. The same way that girl could see her mother in her mother's body. Our natural eyes can't see God. Just as my natural eyes can't see my wife, Carol. Oh, I can see her physical body. But I can't see who she is with my eyes. That is her spirit or her soul. But my spirit can see her quite clearly. I see her love for me, her care for me, her concern for me. And when I get out of line, I see her correction for me as well. I see her very clearly. And in the same way, I can see God. Well, this morning, we've looked at Jesus and his kingship in comparison to that of angels. We've also looked at some of the attributes of angels and some misconceptions about them. And we've also looked at a warning not to fall away and a way to overcome at least one objection to following or believing in God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that we have together. We thank you for technology. So often we complain how technology in the modern age pulls us away from you, pulls us away from our family. But here in the midst of the turmoil that goes on in our world, Lord, today, technology is bringing us together. And I'm thankful and I'm grateful for that. Lord, help us to understand your will for our lives. Help us to know how we can serve you in this time of crisis within our country. How we can be those examples of your love to those around us. Even in the limited contact that we have the capability of right now, Lord, we can still make a huge difference in someone's life. We can be the person who helps lead somebody else to Jesus that they can see you, that they can know that you're real, that you're there, that you want to have that relationship with them. Help us to be the ambassadors that our country needs right now. And I pray for these things in your name. Amen.
So thanks for joining in this morning. And uh, remember to stay safe, stay healthy, keep your distance. And most importantly of all, keep your faith. After all, God's in control of all of this. And who better to have your faith in than the ones who is in control? Good day.